0: The gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down, tell him that God's gonna cut him down.
1: Not much, Luger. You know,
0: we've uh, had a tough time down here lately between my family and our doings here on the coast. I've had two relatives pass away this week, and then I woke up this morning, and granddaddy was calling me because that hurricane they got coming through brought us eight inches of rain and had this mattress store flooded again. So it's just been all out of whack, all cattywampus on us.
1: I'm sorry to hear that. Y'all need to get some good insurance on that store, because that's the second time it's happened. Here in a couple months. The trouble is,
0: the uh, insurance is worth more than it would pay out. I think they charge twelve, or thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a month where we are, because we're so close to the ocean. But anyway,
1: yeah, that hurricane insurance ain't cheap. But we'll start off here with a couple of news points. The first one is Tennessee is now offering two hundred and fifty dollars flight vouchers to people that are coming in to visit. And I don't think that has any use. You know, the the main purpose of this podcast, Duncan and I love this state very much, but we try to tell the bad stories about Tennessee to deter more people from coming here. And they're going to do 10,000 flight vouchers to people. So I don't quite understand that, but we'll move past that. That's not the main purpose of this podcast. Let me tell you, Luke,
0: I... Our stories are to, you know, let folks know what's went on in the past here in Tennessee. But I don't want to deter anybody from visiting. I just want to deter them from coming and staying and then trying to turn us into whatever their hellhole was like that they came from.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. The second part was I went to the lake this weekend, and this will lead us into our story here. And I went to the gas station every morning because I like to eat at the gas station. And I found a good gas station up in Smithville, Tennessee. They had good pizza. And, you know, I'd get some heartburn medicine, too. Anyways, I carried up there every morning. And they had one of those quarter slots. Mm -hmm. And, Duncan, you're probably familiar with quarter slots. You know, they have them at the... Rural gas stations and they're, they're push slots. You put the quarters in and the store puts a little cash in there and you try to push the quarters off the ledge. Well, there was a man up there every morning when I got there and he was just working that thing. And I know he was on opiates. And today we're going to talk about the opiate crisis and we're going to link it to Tennessee. We're going to link one of the worst offenders, and I'm going to put all the links in the description so you can verify it on your own. We're not speculating at all here, but we're going to talk about the opiate crisis, which has devastated the South. It's really a sad thing, but I'm going to tell you about a little bit of background on how I became familiar with it and how I got mixed in with I guess you would call one of the biggest drug dealers in the country. And the Tennessean agrees with me on that. The interesting part is press has reported on this briefly, but they haven't all put it together. And what we're going to talk about today is one of the worst tragedies that ever happened in Tennessee. And we're just now beginning to realize it.
0: Yeah, Luke, the opioid crisis is really a monumental thing in Tennessee. It's affected Tennesseans from all different social classes, all different economic backgrounds. It's it's terrible. And I'm glad that we're finally getting to talk about this because you and I are both keenly aware of some things that occurred that contributed to this crisis. And and I'm glad that we're finally able to put forward our knowledge together so that people will know how we ended up in such a terrible place and how we can avoid ever ending up in this situation again, because it's just so terrible and heartbreaking.
1: And it wasn't just the people who were addicted to opioids. It was their families, their kids, their friends, and Everybody knows somebody who has been affected by this. The effects are far and wide-reaching, but I'll just start with the back story here. When I was in high school, probably about 2012, I was in the ninth grade, and I was on the wrestling team, and we were lucky enough to win state. I wasn't that good, but, you know, after that, we decided to do a little partying. We were celebrating, doing a little bit of pot, and- The school was on to us and the way that TSSAA rules work, which is the governing body of Tennessee high school sports, your school can drug test you. So anyways, I uh, go into school one day and to my displeasure, I figured out I was getting tested and I did. And well, I didn't do a very good job on the test. (laughs) <laughs> and so they brought us up oh, mercy after we failed and they said all right boys you know your grades are okay and we're glad you won't stay but we're gonna have to put you in a program so they put us up at cumberland heights which is oh good lord near Bel johnny cash went there didn't he johnny went there yeah he they, they fixed him up And it's a great place. A lot of good people and they've helped thousands. So, anyways, much to my parents' displeasure, they had to drive me every day, my father did, to this rehabilitation program, which I don't regret going to the program. I you know, I learned a lot. But for two months, my old man had to get off work early and take me to Cool Springs, which I'm sure he wasn't very happy about. And, Dad, I know you're listening. I'm sorry about that, man. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Bless your heart. Anyway. Thank you, Mr. Kemp. <laughs> anyway. That's right. Yeah, he, he's a good man. He is. But, you know, we're I'm doing the program, and we had kind of the troubled kids program. We would do that for about an hour. But afterwards, we would go to these meetings, and. You could do AA or NA. So Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. And at first I picked NA because I thought, well, the stories there will be more interesting. And truthfully, I thought they were going to be, you know, kind of funny. They weren't funny. Yeah. So I started going to these NA meetings and what I learned in there was a bunch of teachers, nurses, construction workers, Lawyers, I think there was even a doctor and the story was always the same. I went in for surgery or I was in chronic pain and they put me on the pills and I couldn't get off of them. Now, these were hardworking people that had done everything else right in life. And these were people with families good careers. And what I heard in there was some of the saddest stories I've ever heard in my life. Oh, yeah. That was my first exposure to the opioid crisis. And it really amazed me how these people were good people, productive citizens, and they had been misled by bad medical practice. Doctors that had violated the Hippocratic Oath, which is first, do no harm. What I didn't know is that many of these people had been to the clinics we're going to talk about today. Right. So I finished that program over there, and my mother sent me, I was still in the doghouse. I was in the doghouse all summer because I, you know, I'd been. Well, rightly so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. And my church was doing a mission trip in West Virginia. And it was to the poorest county in West Virginia, which I'm sure is one of the poorest counties in the U.S. And I said, I don't want to go over there to that. You know, that I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> because as a 14, 15-year-old boy, you'd rather be with your friends in the summertime. But she said, no, you're going you know, a a strict Southern mother, and I know you got one too, Duncan. Oh, Lord Almighty, yes, I sure do, the queen of them all. (laughs) Yeah, and she said, you're going. And what I saw there was some of the most, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but... I saw some of the most dilapidated people you will ever see in your life. Felt like going to a third world country.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure. I, I've been through West Virginia, very rural parts of West Virginia, that is myself. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of when back in college, you and I went through Harlan, uh, Kentucky, and the livelihood that those people have based their whole world around, uh, the coal mining is just not what it once was. And it's kind of destroyed their, their way of life and they don't have many other opportunities. And so one way or another, they usually get involved with those pills.
1: Right. And we're going to put a song at the end of this episode that kind of sums it all up, but you would go to the, there was only one little restaurant up there and it was a pizza joint and you go to the, pizza joint and people were just strung out and some of them were inbred and and I don't I'm not kidding when I say that and I'm not you know trying to speak ill of them either but also a lot of them were just strung out on the pills and these pain clinics ripped through communities like this you know working class coal mining they just absolutely ruined these communities. So that's kind of the background on what I first saw on this. Well, come around twenty sixteen I was in college up at UT and a good friend of ours, Duncan oh gas tax Greg, called me. Oh yeah, hello Greg. While we were at a party I'm surprised I answered, maybe shouldn't have, but he called me and, you know, I was looking for summer work, particularly campaign work. And he said, hey, I got this state Senate campaign for you and it's in your home district and I think you'd be a good fit as campaign manager. And I said, well, you know, that sounds good, Greg. I don't know anything about running a campaign, but I'll give it a go. He said, okay, fine, I'm going to send you their number. So we're going home for the summer, and these guys call me, and they're like, meet us at Shoney's in Donaldson, which I'm like, that's not a good sign. I don't even (laughs) want to be at the Shoney's in Donaldson. But anyways. I do love a good Shoney's, though. I do, too. I do, too. But they call me, and before I get into this story, I want to do a disclaimer here. The man we're about to talk about, I am not speaking ill of his staff or his consulting agency at all because I have come to know those people over the past few years and they are the best at what they do. They had nothing to do with the ethics of these pain clinics. I respect them. They have become my friends. and But anyways...
0: I would just like to say before we go on, I, I second that. I know the folks you're speaking of and I count several of them amongst my personal friends as well. And really I think it's fair to say that none of us at that particular point in time had any idea about the full extent of what was going on and credit to you uh, I don't mean to kind of toot our own horn here, but credit to you, especially, you are one of the first people that really called on to that and started going after that. And I'm not going to say any more because I want you to be able to tell the folks about it in order.
1: Well, and I appreciate that. But, you know, the FBI was already on to it before we got on it. We didn't know that at the time. But, no, Duncan, and you're right. The, Responsibility comes back to one company and one man and his partners. But uh, the person we're going to talk about was actually a very good state senator. He was effective and he knew his district well. He was very considerate of his constituents. And if you didn't know what we're about to talk about, you would think an honorable man. So, I go to start this campaign, really knowing nothing about it. I knew Steve Dickerson was a well liked senator, but basically, this was a gerrymandered district, and gerrymandering is a bad word, but it happens on both sides so right, I mean, that's standard practice, yeah so they they pretty much drew this district for Dickerson. And it's a moderate district. It actually leans a little bit left now. But at the time, it was moderate. And Dickerson was a doctor and a businessman. He started the clinics we're going to talk about. And the man that I had been chosen to run, his campaign was named Ron McDowell. And Ron McDowell was a Vanderbilt MBA. He was a doctor. He started some of the first walk-in clinics in Tennessee. Brilliant man. Yes. I had been chosen to kick off the campaign, and we we came in late. We came in real late. This was like late May, which if you know anything about campaigns, you know, you got a primary in August. I mean, that is... Right. That's not enough time, right? No. No.
0: But, I've been victim to a couple races like that myself.
1: Yeah, they were kind of just hiring whoever they could hire to get started ASAP, which is wh- why I got hired. When I was first starting, I didn't know how we were going to set ourselves apart from the competition because these men were two very similar people, both doctors, businessmen, wealthy you know, knew the district well, and and we were running against a pretty good senator. So I really didn't understand the reasoning for the primary. And Dickerson, when we first started, he called in to Ron, and he was like, "Man, why are you doing this?" And Ron kind of had a hankering that something was up, because he was, you know, a pretty smart guy, and he just. I don't think he knew it at the time, but he knew there was a reason why he ought to run against this guy. And so for the first week or so, I'm sitting on the job trying to figure out what the hell we're even going to say. And my answer came one day when I was out in the field. I had hired like 10 of my high school friends, which was really fun. And they were, you know, (laughs) none of us knew what we were doing. We were just like, all right, you know, we're just going to go knock doors and hand out pamphlets and whatever. And my good buddy Hunter Bradford, I had hired him as the assistant campaign manager and I was going to have him on tonight, but I think he's at the lake. So we're out knocking doors one day and I think it was Ron called me and he was like, Hey, some guy just dropped off an envelope for you at the office. And I'm like, okay, we'll just open it. And we open it and it was all this op-ed research. And oh, yeah. that was kind of our light bulb moment. We have no idea who dropped it off. Cause the guy came up on a motorcycle. He had sunglasses on and he just, dumped all this stuff on us. Still don't know what in the world his incentives were, but that's kind of how it works in politics. Yeah, it is. But he drops off this stuff. And basically what the research insinuated, and it all turned out to be true. And I'm going to put links to all of this stuff. I mean, everything we're going to say, you can back it up. But it was saying that Comprehensive pain specialist, which operated about 60 pain clinics across the country and saw over 50,000 patients a month. So there's no telling how many they saw in totality. Uh, Yeah, let's stress that. A month. A a month. month, All over the South. Insane. Probably in West Virginia, like I was just talking about and they targeted rural communities, working-class communities.
0: As has been a theme with most of the villains we've covered on this program, the Butcher Brothers, they did the same thing, targeted rural working-class people, just like we're talking about right now. Yeah. It's a
1: sad trend, really. Terrible. And so the research insinuated but did not prove that these pain clinics were committing Massive Medicaid fraud and pretty much ripping off the government, but not only that, hurting their patients. And that's what we go back to on the Hippocratic Oath, which you take. That's the first thing you do as a doctor. And so I'm like, all right, here's our, here's our goal. We're going to roll with this. But this was a big company and. We know they had good lawyers, and so we were kind of hanging back on it for a while, which was a mistake. We should have hammered it and hammered it and hammered it as soon as I got that. But we thought, okay, what we're going to do is make as much noise as possible on this campaign, and then we're going to, at the end, we're going to get into that Medicaid fraud And that way, it'll take them by surprise. That was a mistake. I now know that. But so we start running these crazy ads. I mean, we're we're saying ridiculous stuff. And I'll put this link in the description. But one of the ads we did was a ISIS flag hanging in a residential neighborhood. It was a postcard. We sent it out to the whole town. And we said something like, Steve Dickerson loves ISIS. I mean, that was (laughs) quite a stretch. But what we were trying to... I remember that. Yeah, I mean, we were just trying to get attention around the race. And so we did that and, you know, had the news, I remember came over to the house cuz this was a big house in West Nashville and it had an office on the side like a 2000 square foot office because he yeah. ran his business out of the house at some point too and i remember the news coming over to the house and i was yelling at everybody like shut the damn gate shut the damn gate <laughs> so we were trying to keep <laughs> we were trying to keep the local news from coming in you know, to the (laughs) office and talking to us about it because we didn't know what to say about it. I mean, we knew it was a stretch. But after that ad went out, we started going up in the polls. And so we did that. And then some personal stuff came out about Ron's prior marriage. And I remember us kind of worrying about that, you know, and I talked to everybody on staff. You know, I had about 10 of us. And and I was also comforted by the fact that his daughter was extremely close with her father and the ex-wife had also signed the petition for him to run for state Senate. And we had the Nashville scene going after us and everything. But at that point, it didn't matter because Dickerson, we knew was hurting a lot of people. So anyways, we finally decided to drop the ads. And these were black and white TV ads. We were doing Facebook, I believe robocalls, radio, and TV. So we were blasting them out there. It, right. I think it cost like a 100000 bucks. I mean, we were running it on ESPN, Fox News, everything.
0: I remember there was a particular time in the campaign where I had some stuff going on uh, in my campaign that I was working on at the time in West Tennessee, and I rode up there and saw you, and we took a lunch. It Chili's over it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I believe it was TGI Fridays, and yeah, it, it was a bit of a stressful time. After the ads, <laughs> basically what we were accusing them of was being a total fraud, which they were, and hurting their patients and committing Medicaid fraud, which they were. So, I get a call one day. I'm at work. My dad calls me. He had gotten home early that day. You know, of course, I was nineteen years old. I mean i we were all young. We had no idea what we were doing. Oh, I remember, but we were full of VM and
0: vinegar for
1: sure, yeah, and so i you know I was living at home for the summer and my dad said hey man these <laughs> these lawyers just came by, and they uh he opened up the letter because he wasn't going to take any chances. And he said, yeah, those boys over at Bradley are going to sue you. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, yeah, they, they're they suing you for defamation. And, you know, there I think there were a couple more claims. I'll put the letter in the description in the links. But if you if you don't know, Bradley is not a law firm to mess with around here. I mean, you got Best Sims and Bradley, and those are about the best two in town. Right. And so my dad was all worried, like, man, you're you're about to get sued. You're gonna you know you're gonna have to get a lawyer and all this. And so I I told Ron that because we had made these pretty aggressive claims against comprehensive pain specialists and Senator Dickerson. And so we called this very colorful lawyer named Adam Dred, And he was a former city councilman at large in Nashville. And, you know, he had a bit of a reputation for being pretty tough. He, he was, uh, but we called him and he read the letter and he said, no, they're bluffing, man. They're bluffing. Don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you do. And we're like, are you sure? You know, they... I mean, they had sent runners to both of our houses and they seem like they're about to get us. He said, nope. Why would somebody send you a letter saying they're going to sue you and then not sue you? So we waited. We waited a day. They called us back the next day and they said, well, you know, we're, we're prepared to take this to court. You know, watch out. And I said, okay. Well, I will call Comcast and I will take our Facebook post down. But pay attention to those words because I did call Comcast. Did I call Comcast and tell them to take the ad down? No. I called Comcast to create a paper trail of me calling Comcast and rambled on about how their service was too expensive. (laughs) I took the Facebook post down. You can hide a Facebook post and keep an ad running concurrently. And so we kept the Facebook ad running. We kept the TV ad running. And they were starting to freak out. At that time, we were starting to get a little bit confident. And let me say, we did not win this race. We started to think there's no way he's going to get elected with all this coming out. And it did some damage. And we went up. In the polls, but it was too late. We we should have done it sooner. At that time, we decided to go to the RNC, the Republican National Convention. I was delegate for Marco Rubio. I'd ran while I was still in school, which I didn't even know I had won for like a whole week because I forgot that I ran. <laughs> <Thanks>. But. Uh, <laughs> You know, we were up at UT doing what we did up at UT and not necessarily paying attention to external matters.
0: Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I I will say one thing. Let me interject here. For us to be as young as we were, I would like to think, and like I say, I don't mean to just brag on ourselves, but we were doing some high-powered politicking at a young age. Yeah. You doing what you were doing over there and – Uh, You know, we worked together a few times and then me doing what I worked on in West Tennessee. We did some high-fired politicking at an age that most folks wouldn't even dream of trying to do that in. Yeah,
1: and we we really didn't know what we were doing, but (laughs) we tried. No, you know, we we played it by ear. So Ron and I decided to go to the convention. We had to be there. But, you know, I was going through another kind of tough situation. Brokered conventions have happened in the past, and Mm -hmm. they can get a little dicey with the delegates. And You know, you had a large field in the 2016 primaries. And so Roger Stone, who was in the Watergate trials, and worked for Nixon, and also worked for Trump later. Yeah. He got on the TV set, and he said, these Rubio delegates, uh, we're going to send people to your hotel room. I'm dealing with this Dickerson stuff on getting sued and all this business. My assistant campaign manager was at church camp, I think, that week, helping with church camp. I got my 16-year-old brother running the Daggum campaign, which he did a great job for a 16-year-old. And, you know, I didn't quite know what to do then.
0: (laughs) It was a wild time. I remember all that, and I remember you, of course, we were dear friends by this point anyway, so I remember you talking to me and calling me every day about it and you being interviewed by all the different news groups and things of that nature. and. I just, I remember how crazy it was. It was a, (laughs) let me just say that for people so young to be that involved in politics, I doubt there will be a wilder time. I mean, it was just the perfect storm, really.
1: So I start, I get to the convention. I'm all worried about the campaign. Before I had left, it had been, you know, we were running all these ads and Our numbers were ticking up a little bit, and I was trying to teach my brother how to do all the campaigning software and everything. And one of the things we were doing is pretty much running two different campaigns. Mm -hmm. This district was pretty interesting because you had you know, the very wealthy areas, Bellmead, Green Hills, stuff like that. And those people are more moderate. And they're, you know, they're business conservatives. They're briefcase Republicans. And nice. you also had areas like Jolton and Union Hill, which my family's from Union Hill many generations ago. And I still got kinfolk up there. And uh, those are country people, man. They don't mess around and they are their blood runs red. So we were kind of running two different campaigns in the in the nice areas we were saying well you know he's a Vandy MBA and a doctor which, you know it's all true and in the more rural areas we were saying well Steve Dickerson you know is a moderate and a rhino all that but I go to the convention and it was pretty awkward because Governor Haslam was a big fan of Dickerson's and of course he was there Haslam was and I remember him looking over at us with some not so nice looks because he had been donating all this money to Dickerson's campaign because they didn't want McDowell to get in there because McDowell was pretty tough and probably a little bit more conservative than they would have liked and so I'm at the convention and I found this little bar because I didn't want people around me you know the Tennessee people to hear what was going on in the campaign. So I'd sneak off to the little bar outside of the convention and get on the phone with my brother and, you know, check in on things. And I remember walking back from the bar one day and somebody was burning an American flag and I remember running at the guy and I was going to, I was going to kick him Lord. and I remember a policeman grabbed me. He saw me running at him. He said, don't do it. I understand, but don't do it. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he stopped me. But anyways, you know, we're going through all this crazy stuff at the convention. And I'll tell one more story on that. It was funny. They had this warehouse rented out. And this was like probably an old steel warehouse. And they were having a big party in there. And one of my buddies that I met up there, who was a Hill staffer, Later, worked in the White House had gotten me in, and we walked in, and Kevin McCarthy, and you know, the oh wow, White yeah. House chief of staff, and all those guys were there, and they were partying their asses off, and that was the the most fun I've ever had in my life. It was quite a sight, but the whole time, I, you know, I was worried about this campaign back at home because I'd started to take it personally. You know, I. It really bothered me how these clinics were essentially killing people, and you had the Governor of Tennessee and you know all these high powered politicians thinking he hung the moon, and the press was kind of protecting him too. Well, we get back, you know the convention was crazy, and it was fun and we have a fundraiser, and this guy named Tim Scal. And, Tim, if if this gets back to you, don't you ever talk to me like that again or I'll punch you in the face. (laughs) But uh, this guy who runs a breakfast called First Tuesday, and it's kind of where a lot of the middle Tennessee politicians go, he shows up at the fundraiser and he corners me and he chews me out. He's like, boy, you have no idea what you're doing. You know, the lieutenant governor, and he was speaking of Ron Ramsey, not our current one, who's a great guy. He said, you know, he's mad at y'all, and this seat needs to stay the way it is, and you better watch your mouth. And I didn't know who Tim was. You know, I know now he was just a loser. I should have clocked him in the face because he cornered me for about 30 minutes. But, you know, that was kind of the pressure we were under, and I was getting calls from all these people that I knew from prior dealings in politics, and I really thought about leaving for a minute. I thought, you know, is this worth it? And is what we're saying even true? I mean, are these clinics killing people? Are they, are they actually committing Medicaid fraud? Uh, and they were, and I'm glad I stayed. But we didn't know what we were doing. When they were talking about suing us, which was a total bluff, they weren't going to do it because they didn't want to go to court and discuss this stuff. Right. I remember it was my birthday, and the lawyer had called me one day, and I had been <laughs> I had been down at the apartments drinking a little bit.
0: Uh-huh, <laughs> imagine that.
1: <laughs> and I called the lawyer, and I do not particularly – recall the conversation, but uh, I highly doubt my voicemail was very kind. But, you know, we were messing with some great law firm and a big company, a company that had 60 clinics across the South. I didn't really know what I was up against uh, until afterward. You know, it, it, at the time, I was just a probably overly cocky 19-year-old boy. But... Time went on. We lost the race 40 to 60, which made sense because we had started pretty late. Dickerson was an incumbent and he fit the district better. He fit the political views of the district better. So it kind of made sense. Uh, we were disappointed, but honestly, we were happy to get 40%. You know, we were just kids. That's a,
0: let me just say that is amazing there that you went against a well-funded incumbent and were able to get 40% of the vote. 40 to 60 is not a bad loss, uh, especially in a race with those circumstances. I wish some of the races I'd been on had been that close because that's not a bad, a bad margin at all, really, especially for someone so young going into politics and then having that much control over the campaign. I mean, and honestly, I don't think a trained professional could have done much better.
1: Well, and Ron was one of those guys who was so brilliant that he had trouble communicating. And so I couldn't take him around and show him off on stump speeches. And his policy ideas were brilliant he he understood taxes and and how to create a you know, good environment for small businesses almost better than anybody because he had fought a lot of battles on that but the campaign ended and afterwards I started to realize how bad CPS comprehensive pain specialist actually was and you know we had ran the ads against him and they never ended up suing us. Total bluff. But like we said earlier, CPS saw about 50,000 patients a month. And they were really bad dudes. So come 2019, I'm sitting at work in Knoxville, talking to a client, I'm in a meeting, I get this notification on my phone. And it read, feds to sue Senator Steve Dippersen and other pain clinic owners over fraud and forgery allegations. I'll never forget that. They ended up losing that case. Senator Dickerson was, it was just in a civil matter. I think he ought to have been charged criminally, but he had a little bit of political swing He ended up losing that case and paid an undisclosed amount to the feds. And then the CPS CEO, John Davis, was put in jail. He was sentenced to federal prison. And so basically, they found that CPS had been fraudulent and they had been overbilling the government. What they did not... What they weren't able to charge on, though, is the people that they had hurt because technically, you know, they were prescribing medicine that was legal. And when we're talking about over 50,000 patients a month, if you quantify that uh, based on, you know, drug addiction statistics, we're talking about conservatively, probably about 10,000 people that lost their lives. We're talking about if you've ever experienced chronic pain, you know how much of an urgent and desperate situation that is. You will do anything to resolve it. We're talking about doctors that were trying to make a quick buck off of some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Cancer patients, blue collar workers. It's really pretty sick. And these clinics, if you have any doubt about, you know, their ethics, then just read the articles that I'm going to post because they were over prescribing, over billing, over testing, and that that's proven. And they ruined not just only probably 10,000 lives, but the lives of their family and friends. I mean, it, it it's a very
0: sobering and melancholy thing to think about, uh, just how many people lost their lives uh, because of clinics such as that. And a lot of folks don't know this, but when I was in high school, I worked at a pharmacy as a clerk. And the biggest problem I had to deal with was people that would come in getting all these prescriptions from these pain clinics because every time we got one, even at that point, In the, you know, mid 20 teens, even then pharmacists were starting to catch on because we had to get everything approved by the pharmacist when somebody came in with a prescription from one of those clinics. And to be frank, there were a lot of those people that would go out in front of the building and try to sell their pills without even bothering to try to hide from us. We'd have to call the law on them, but. We knew that was a problem for a long period of time, but we didn't know how it was a problem or what the deal was. And by the time it was, it's almost like it was too little too late to try to fix it. Because as we've talked about many times, it had already affected and even ruined just so many families, not just Tennesseans, but Southerners all across the board and then people all across this country because that was going on, you know, in all the states. So it's it's very saddening, but I'm glad that we're starting to go the other way.
1: Yeah, and Duncan, you know, I've sat in these rehab halls and I've heard the heartbreaking stories of these people who really – Never intended on being drug addicts. Of course, nobody does, but these people were doing what their doctors told them to do. They had no ill intentions. And of course, there were some people that went to these clinics that were just looking for a fix. And I'm sure not all of the doctors were bad. But if you look into the ethics of this company, there is no other conclusion to make other than that these doctors were only concerned about making a buck. And at the very best, they were ignorant of the effects they were having on their patients. I mean, did they not realize when people started to die off or not come back or come back strung up in the office that they were doing some harm? And, you know, there's been reform on Pain clinics. There's been kind of some alternate treatments, and now they've gotten, they've kind of cracked down on it. But we're talking about a company that did damage all across the South, and they were one of the worst perpetrators of it. And it happened in our backyard. It happened to our neighbors. It happened to our loved ones. And I can't believe that this has not been put together in the way that we're trying to do it. This was true evil. There is no other way to look at it. These people were were horrible doctors, and they killed people. They killed a lot of people. And I know it because I've been in the rooms, I've been in the rehabs, and it's really one of the saddest things I've ever heard.
0: It is. I mean, it, it's terrible what happened. I I make no bones about that. And you know, it. I can't help but think there's an old saying about drinking, but I think it applies to this as well. The saying about drinking is first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink can take you. But I think that same exact philosophy can be put into what these doctors did. And it's, First, they started making money, then they made a whole lot of money, and then the money made them, and that's why they did not want to quit doing what they were doing. A lot of them probably did realize that things were going awry and it was not right, but they were getting so dirty, filthy rich off of it, they couldn't stop doing it once they would started and it's a sad thing, and that's by no means a representation of all doctors, but it can happen. And it did happen. And it's going to be a long time before we ever recover from this travesty.
1: Yeah. And it's still going on. I'm looking on my computer here. This is the the United States Department of Justice. And they just put out an article on April 21 about how they're going to work to settle fraud allegations. But one thing I need mention, and this is how it goes all the way to the top. This really bothered me. John Davis, that CEO, who was a crooked bastard mm. and went to jail after killing a lot of people. I think he had a four-year sentence. Wouldn't you believe that he got pardoned last year? Got pardoned got off on a presidential Mm. pardon. I'm not blaming the White House for that pardon because they they don't know who they're pardoning. They just get a list of people to pardon and they do it. That's how all of it works. And so we talked about pardons in the last episode. And presidential pardons have to be ran up the line by a United States senator. And so... We all know who ran this pardon up, so thanks for that. Good job. But John Davis is walking scot-free right now, probably still living out there in Brentwood. And let me tell you something, John and Steve, you know, this may get back to you. I hope you're listening. Every night before you go to bed, I hope you think about the working class people that you killed and all the families that you wrecked just so you can make an extra vote because what you did was take advantage of some of the most vulnerable people amongst us and you ought to be ashamed of yourself and steve if you want to try to sue me for defamation again on doing this podcast i'll meet you up at the damn courthouse tomorrow morning because i'd love to talk about this